My guest this week took some pinning down, but my goodness, was it worth the wait. Carol Dysinger directed the short documentary Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone If You're a Girl, which I highly recommend. You can find it online and it's just devastating and beautiful and given the world we live in, even more heartbreaking, honestly. Uh, it won the Academy Award for Best Short Documentary as well as the BAFTA for Best Short. It also won Best Documentary Short from the IDA and the Tribeca Film Festival. She is the recipient of multiple awards, among them the David Payne Carter Award for Excellence in Teaching and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She is Associate Professor at NYU Film School and she spoke to me from her apartment in New York. Carol, thank you for being my guest. It's a real, real pleasure to have you on my show. I'm my thrilled. great pleasure. I um, love talking about books. Yes, um, so do I, which is why I invented the podcast. I basically came up with it because I accidentally married someone who doesn't really read. Oh, God. And, uh, <laughs> so I had to source all the friends I could uh, mm-hmm. in order to pull them in and talk about books that I love and that they might love. Um I loved your list. It was such a pleasure, a such oh. <laughs> an absolute pleasure. I always love it. It's so fun. I, it's such a moment of frisson for me when the lists come in um, to start. It's why I always ask for them with as much time as possible so that I can start mapping out what I think of as the sort of, you know, the figure behind these five books. And it's such an interesting thing to do. I was also just so grateful to have so many women writers on your list. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I struggled with this forever. And then when I got down, it's like, okay, these are the ones that for good or ill impacted my life. I love that. And that, that was why I made the show about not your favorite, but, but right. the ones that, that shape you. They feel to me, um, they, they demand a degree of authenticity that I think is really interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about your first book, because this is a one that I think all of us know. <laughs> um, your first book is The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. It was published in 1964. Who first read you this book? Um, I don't know, but I imagine it was my mother, because mm-hmm. my father didn't really read books to me, and my grandparents didn't read. So um, I imagine it was my mother, but I don't really remember it. I just, I remember the pictures mostly. Um, I don't remember the text. I was born in 55. So, um, so I probably got it slightly later in life than a kid, you know, than a kid's book. Uh So I may have read it myself as Uh well. Mm-hmm. But it was it was it horrified me. It absolutely horrified me. Completely Do you remember freaked me out. It horrified you from the from the first time that you read it. Yes, oh. it's terrified me. It took me years to figure out why. Interesting. And what what was the horror for you? Was it incremental, or was it that just that final image? We should say for the people that 
possibly haven't read the book. It's the story of a young boy and his relationship with a tree who uh, is feminine, it bears saying, and uh, gives and gives and gives of herself, gives her apples, gives her leaves, gives her branches, and until the ma- and the boy continues to grow until he, by the end, is a toothless old man and he has taken everything from the tree and all that is left is her stump and he sits down on her stump. So yeah. um, it's not... It's not bewildering what <laughs> where the horror lies, but I'm curious. Did you do you remember feeling it as as a growing sense of of dread? No, the- it was a sudden sense of dread uh, mm-hmm. because you know I am a daughter of an Italian family. You know, uh, my I had a there was one son in my family, but who was older than me, so. It wasn't the Carol, go get your brother a glass of water kind of Italian, but it was close, Uh you know? Um, And I had been raised in the idea that one should be generous and kind and take care of people. And, you know, and I tried to do that and I really wanted to be a good person. And I had my Catholic girl, you know, fling of being a nun and all that stuff. So it was like, yes, and she gave him the apples, and yes, and all the leaves, and the thing. And then when I saw the stump, (laughs) and this fat old man with his butt on that stump, uh, it was like, literally, I turned the page and had a panic attack. (laughs) I mean, I was just like, (laughs) oh, this is where this is leading, (sighs) you know, and I I was kind of watching, I remember there had been a mass that we went to where the preacher was talking about the crucifixion. It was Easter. And he was saying, you know, in our neighborhood, the daughter came home from school and gave up her college education to take care of her elderly father. This is because this is like God giving up his only begotten son because he loved us that much. And this litany and this sort of litany of the daughter who gave up her education because she loved him that much. And the mother who blotted it up like, cause she loved him that much. Mm-hmm. So there's Jesus Christ. And then there was a long list of women. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, a kid going, Hmm. hmm. <laughs> and I had secret jealousies of my brother who got mm-hmm. everything, but I kept pushing them down. Like, that's not nice, Carol. You should be a good person. But when I saw the butt on the stump, after having been going, oh, this is great, this is great, and that image, I was like, okay, this is not good. <laughs> and if this is not good, I got to think about, you know, where does it become not good? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, the apples, that's fine. They'll, I'll have more apples. Mm-hmm. Leaves, yeah, okay, I'll grow more leaves. Mm-hmm. But once we get past that point, I get to say no. <laughs> so it was like a real, you know, I think it was something I was feeling, but there wasn't an articulation mm. out in the world around me, mm. you know. But when I saw that picture of, I mean, if I was an artist, I would probably be painting it over and over mm. and over again. Because it completely, it just, I was like feeling all warm and fuzzy and then like was in shock. Mm. And it did. It did. It made me, you know, think about boundaries, even in sixth grade. Mm. You're just like, no, I'm not giving you my candy. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I think I can totally 
see that, you know, it was banned in Colorado in the 60s, the book. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. For its, for its, what was considered its hatred of the female voice. And it, I'm so curious about, about Sel- Shel Silverstein, you know, who frequented the Playboy Mansion, who possibly sired two children by a playgirl. Like, <laughs> I, I went off and looked him up because he's not, he's an American icon. He's not yeah. really English. I didn't know the giving tree until I came to the US 20 years ago and <laughs> I haven't had kids yet. Yeah. And I immediately started with Where the Sidewalk Ends. And in uh-huh. fact, The Missing Piece was my first one. And I really loved The Missing Piece. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful piece about you don't need someone uh-huh. else to complete you. Uh-huh. But I read The Giving Tree and was horrified by the message, but I was equally horrified by the bio photo of him. It's one of the spookiest black and white photos of this beatnik, unprepossessing, so not the kids illustrator <laughs> loving type. There's something. Yeah, I don't I don't remember that photo at all. I mean, it may not have even been in the book. Right. I, mean, I haven't looked at the book since. Except, you know, when I saw it in a friend of mine's house with the kids, I picked it up and said, I'm taking this. <laughs> Good for you. You're not, you're not having this around my knee, knee, my friend, nieces, and nephews. And he's like, really? It. Why? I'm like, just shut up. I'm taking it. Trust I just me. Don't even trust yeah. me. You know. I, uh, I had a look at it. I dug it out of our bookcase to take a look at it. And I was struck by what you call the butt on the stump, which I love. I just, that phrase is so great. And is the beginnings of the roots of feminism, I can tell. But I love that he's facing away I know us, the old man. He's not even facing us. He's facing some unknown. He's facing what feels like the past or the melancholy of whatever he's done. Yeah, he's like, he's feeling, what my reading was, is he's yeah. sitting on this tree feeling sorry for himself. Sure, sure. Not feeling grateful for this tree that gave him so much. He's not even saying thank you. Right. You know, he's just feeling all mopey because his life is over and just, you know, all he has is this stump. And there's just, I it was, I can't even, it was such a complicated set of feelings. I think it took me years to, you know, to sort it out. Because I remember also there was later when, Oh, I can't remember his name. He was a screenwriter who's the the biggest sexist like goofball in the world, and he wrote a movie about pole dancers. Oh, right. I can't remember what it was called, but he was quoted, and I knew I knew one of the people who were working on it was in the room when this happened. That he took like the major designer and the major people in the movie out for a lap dance, and this woman was lap dancing you know, over him being all mm-hmm. sexy. And he said to this woman, you have all the power. And I was like, if she had one <laughs> ounce of power, man, she would not be stridling your fat body. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, or like, and then in screenwriting and somebody said, well, it's a whore with a heart of gold. And let me, I was just like the whore with a heart of gold is the best hooker in the room. Cause she's getting money without having to fuck anybody. You know, it's like this, this idea that there's some, you know, or somebody it's again, it was the same as somebody I did something for someone mm-hmm. and he said, thank you. know, he didn't, I know. I think he said, thank you, Carol. It's like, you're so maternal. Mm. And I don't have kids, you know, and I was mm-hmm. like, I'm not a mother. I'm not your mother. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I am not generous because I'm a woman. I'm just generous, you know, but it was really, it really, it set an alarm for me mm-hmm. that I'm sure has not given me a reputation for being the nicest person in the world. But 
<laughs> but who wants that reputation? Yeah. Well, you know, people do. I mean, and it's I guess so. you know, people do. I guess so. I guess they do. I guess, to my mind, anyone that has uh, any ounce of creativity in them. Uh, has long renounced the need to be the nicest person yeah. in the room. I yeah, you have to, or else you never get anything done. Particularly as a woman, I, yeah. I think that's that's very true. Okay. Which leads me to your next book, and I'm going to go in the order that you listed them. That's good. Um, I did them in sort of age order. I, I figured that. Your next book was Under My Skin, which is volume one of my autobiography to 1949 by Doris Lessing. Yeah. It was published in 1994, the second volume, but other listeners is called Walking in the Shade mm-hmm. and takes her from 1949 to 1962. Full disclosure, I had only read The Fifth Child by Doris Lessing. Really? Oh, um, lady, come on. I know of hers uh, that I had read. And I have The Golden Notebook. Uh, I have The Grass is Singing. I have a bunch of others. I have one sitting on my desk now that I'm going to take upstairs. I loved doing my deep dive into her and her, who she was. Uh, And I love that she's twice on your list, which suggests someone really, truly formative. So let's peel apart this book and the one that's to come. Tell me about this book, when you read it, who you were when you read it. Okay. Well, when I read it, I was, um, I was going through a very rough time. I was married. Uh, my husband and I were starting to try to have kids and typical, you know, had typical had waited a little bit too long. So I was very nervous and he hit his head and, um, it was a high level, but it made him a kind of a different person. And I didn't know how much of him was going to come back, you know, and it changed him. And we ended up, you know, it took a while, but we ended up divorcing. So I had really wanted, I really wanted a family, you know, I didn't so much just want a kid, I wanted a family, you know, I'd always Mm -hmm. thought I would be a person with a lot of dog hair on the couch. And, you know, um, and I was devastated. You know, I had had quite a good screenwriting career going up that point, uh, which got completely tanked by having to take care of my husband. I took a teaching job so I could keep the insurance going. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant, you know, I, I, my career ended, I emptied my savings. I wasn't going to have children and my husband left. Right. It was like everything was going right. And then the train left the station without me yeah. and I was really devastated. And I, I read the book came out around that time and I, I love Doris Lessing with passion that I can't even begin to, you know, it's like most of men who are my friends, I say, you have to read the golden notebook and then we'll talk. (laughs) Um, um, But there's a moment in her life where she was raised on this veldt, you know, her father was given land you know, because he had been a soldier and they were giving soldiers like a bunch of land, somebody else's land in Africa. And he was a total failure as a farmer. In Zimbabwe, right? Southern Rhodesia. Yeah, in Zimbabwe. I think it was Rhodesia at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically grew up running around the veldt. You know, she just basically grew up wild in the the wild. And uh, her mother was sort of a Miss Havisham fading dilettante who couldn't keep it up. 
And so she ended up marrying quite young, a sort of civil servant, sort of moved from the wilderness to the, you know, the kind of martinis on the porch at four life and had two kids. And she left her husband and her children, who were quite young, to go to move to Cape Town to, I think they were lovers, I'm not sure, but to be with an older German communist because and join the communist party and move to Cape town because the communist party at that point, which was the twenties uh, was the only organization that was opposing apartheid. And she in her bones just opposed apartheid partly because she'd grown up among, you know, the tribes that was in that area in Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. And so there's this moment in the book where she's in an SRO after having been either in the wilderness or in a mansion in, you know, wherever. Um, and there's like a radio playing and babies crying and people yelling. And it's like, and she says in the book, I realized that I'm going to, I'm not going to quote it right. Hmm. I realized that I had arrived for the first time uh, to a point where I would arrive to several times later in my life, but this was the first time where it was necessary for me to reimagine what I needed to survive. Mm. And it hit me. It was like, yes, I mm. thought I was going to have kids and this crazy Italian husband who loved to cook and, you know, the house in Shelter Island with a room where I wrote, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. None of that's going to happen now. Mm. And it is my next step is an act of imagination. It's not an act Mm -hmm. of survival. It's not an act of desperation. It's an act of imagination. And that just put my feet back on the ground, you know, and Mm -hmm. I just, it gave me, you know, she lost everything because she chose to go and follow her beliefs, you know, my mother hated Doris Lessing because she left her kids. She wouldn't read her right. because she left her children. Right. And, um, and it only made me think how tempted my mother must have been <laughs> to leave us behind. <laughs> I don't want to know. You know, but it made me realize it's like whether your life is ripped out of your hands or, or you make a step that make, takes all the supports away, your next step must be be something you imagine that comes from the living life from the inside. And that's when I said, you know what? I took this teaching job for the insurance, but I really like it. Mm-hmm. And so I really threw myself full on into teaching, which mm-hmm. has made me certainly not as rich as, but much happier mm-hmm. than I was as a uh-huh. servant to the Hollywood machine. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. This is a beautiful story, Carol. I, I'm so grateful to you for sharing all of that. It's 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 so exquisite and it so gets to the heart of what I want this podcast to be about, which yeah. is how how these books I, I, I have similar books that have obviously or we wouldn't be here, mm-hmm. that have viscerally um changed how I experienced myself in Right, the exactly. Not just the world, but, mm-hmm. but my experience of myself in it. And I yeah. am so struck by your phrase that the next act has to be an act of, of imagination. Not it's mine. Really, 
Doris Lessing. <laughs> Doris Lessing. <laughs> but that, that how you appropriated it for yeah. your for your situation. Yeah. I have because I didn't know the book, so I went and did a deep dive on it. And I, I found this beautiful little extract that I loved, which was just a tiny description of all that she could do uh, as a kid, the, the, yes. the skills that she acquired on the belt. So by the time she was 14, Lessing says, she could set a hen, look after chickens and rabbits, work dogs and cats, pan for gold, take samples from reefs, so use the milk separator and churn butter, make cream cheese and ginger beer, drive the car, shoot pigeons and guinea fowl for the pot, preserve eggs and a lot else. Doing these things, I was truly happy. Few things in my life have given me greater pleasure. Yeah, exactly. I was so struck by that because, you know, something your books brought up for me it's also a place that I'm in at the moment I'm reading and not even by choice necessarily I'm just reading so so many books by women at the moment yeah. it just I looked at my book stand and was struck that the eight in a row just in the last month have all mm -hmm. been female writers um and inspired in no small part by uh, Rachel Cusk's latest novel Second Place which I oh yeah love. I'm a big fan of hers and and um and but I I'm also got this 1929 book by Dorothy Canfield at the moment called The Homemaker. Do you know that book? Yes, I think I have. It was it was published. It was republished by Virago Modern Classics by Persephone. But yes, yeah. yes. But, but, yes. but in the 70s there was Virago Modern Classics. Oh, right. Oh look I, at that! My mother and I collected them, so I have a whole bunch of them. Oh, okay, uh, Virago Modern Classics was just basically Penguin just went back into the archive and found all right. of these books that had gone out of yes. print and just republished them. And I think that was one of them. And then I think it was republished by Persephone. I don't remember it very well, but yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a it, fantastic book and I would urge everyone to go find it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really, really wonderful. And it's about, a, it's extraordinarily modern for its time. And it's a, a woman uh, who begins as this sort of extra fastidious, super fussy, exquisite homemaker who makes everything from her upholsters, her sofa <laughs> to the child's beautiful collar. And her husband is this Milton quoting useless guy who works in a shop and he loses his job. And they he has a horrible accident that is basically self-inflicted and she ends up having to go out to work while he stays home with the children. He becomes, I think, literature's first house husband. Uh -huh. And um, and so, uh, and, and it's just extraordinary because she blooms. She absolutely blooms going to work in this store, devours it, can't read enough books on retail and mm -hmm. comes home and doesn't care so much about the housekeeping and the children blossom. And, and it's, it, anyway, it, it yeah. ends in a slightly more dubious way, but it's a, mm -hmm. it's a really extraordinarily modern book. And I'm struck when I just reading that, that little list of, of essentially largely domestic things that Doris Lessing lists. Well, but farm as a child, things. Yeah. Yeah. The farm things, yes. The, the, the churning of butter and, you know, shooting pigeons for the pot and preserving eggs. And I'm struck by, like, when does it happen? What, what's, the, what's the tipping point, right, where these things that, are, that have such beauty in their itemizing and give such pleasure, it's the tipping into this over-responsibility as a woman, right, yeah. where you're doing it, for other people, day in, day out, unremunerated, unconsecrated, yeah. right? Unless it's by literature, it's, yeah. it's an interesting. <laughs> she, an you interesting know, there, thing there. she wrote a fabulous book called *The Good Terrorist*. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Doris Lessing did, which is from the point of view, a total unreliable narrator of a woman who is just trying to, to dress up the squat, you know, Mm -hmm. that all these people live in. She's like conniving to get curtains and conniving to get, but it ends, it, it just takes her beat by beat by beat from being this sort of, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And given that Doris Lessing was a believer in all of the major movements of our time that ended, she was a communist until Stalin came in. She was a Sufi uh, Muslim, Mm -hmm. went to Afghanistan from Russia in the eighties. Um, you know, so she has this brain, this scope of view that's very unusual, you know. Mm. And then she got into science fiction, which is a whole other, you know, she just, I don't know. I just love the woman. I wish I had that. It's, so, it's so great. Well, I, I was I was struck by the parallels between the two of you, honestly, particularly <laughs> when I discovered that she went to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, did that inspire you? Actually, no, um, but yeah, I was happy no. that we had that in common. Yeah. Tell me about your third book, which interestingly is the first time, given that this is season three and I'm approaching you know, 35 guests that I've interviewed, this is the first time that this book has appeared on the list. The book is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, yeah. in, written in 1847. Yeah. Uh, and tell me, tell me when you read this, if you remember. Oh, man. I probably read it once a year from the time I was like 12 mm. to the time I was 20. Really? Yeah, I, I was obsessed with it. I read that and Little mm. Women constantly, but I, I didn't put mm-hmm. Little Women down because I, I tried to read it the other day and I was like, oh, my God, Carol. <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, uh, no, we'll Wuthering, that, but tell yeah. me about, tell well, me about Wuthering. I think what Wuthering Heights did to my life was it really screwed me up about men. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It really messed me up about what uh, men's love should feel like and be hmm. like. Now, I grew up without a father, hmm. and you know, uh, most of my education about relationships came from, you know, Jane Austen and the Brontes, you know, I, I, um, I just, I, when I got to college and the teacher said, well, you know, Jane Austen is a, is uses relationships as a way to discuss other things. It's not like she's saying there's the perfect man for every woman. And I was like, wait a minute, what, what are you saying? (laughs) You know, wait, 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 wait. Um, but Wuthering Heights, I think, really, it, it, it sort of, as it does to many girls in their early teens, is it really created, sort of hooked on to my burgeoning uh, sexuality mm-hmm. and just really made me think. And when I think of some of the men that I just befriended and never let become something else because I thought sexual love should be like that. Should, should be, be obsessive. Like should be like Heathcliff. Right. You know, that it should be this. And I, and it took me a long, it took me much longer than it should have to shake mm. it, you know, mm. much longer. And I just, you know, it made me, when I sort of 
got over it and read it again as a grown up. I recently like, which was good for this. I recently, like about two years ago, decided to go back through and, and, uh, I got up, I got cataract surgery, which made it hard for me to read print. So I said, okay, I'm going to get mm-hmm. audible books and just listen to all the books that, you know, were pivotal to me, which are a lot. Cause I am an omnivorous reader. Right. Clearly. Yeah. And when I, when I listened to Wuthering Heights, I was like, oh, oh dear. Yes. Oh, (laughs) oh, you know, it was like, I felt like there were so many guys. I wish I had their address so I could write them a letter and say, I am really sorry. I just figured out what I did and why I did it. And it wasn't you. It really wasn't. It was Heathcliff, you know, it was like, hilarious. So I think it really messed me up. I think that book mm. really messed me up. And, and you know, it really did. And you think that even though you read it as consistently as you did through all that time, you still think it, you allowed the misconception to persist for that long? Well, I think... Um, I don't know if it was a perception that could be a misperception. It was just a sense of urgent longing. Right. Of, and, right. I, and I think it was connected to not having a father, just wanting somebody to want me so much that they would like dig up my grave. You know what I mean? Right. Sure. Just wanting to be wanted and not have this feeling that I had to wear makeup and lose weight and like, you know, sit in a certain position and, and Mm -hmm. entice. I wanted somebody to just want me and not have to like, you know, dance around it, you know, which finally my husband did, but it was, Mm -hmm. he was much nicer about it. You know, (laughs) 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 he was much, much smarter. I just told him and I said, listen, I know what's going to happen. You're going to stay the night. We're going to have a good time. And then you're not going to call me for a week and my week is going to be terrible. Yeah. And he said, and then literally the next morning he left and he called me from the nearest payphone, And then he called me from the next payphone, And then he called me from the next payphone. And I said, okay, I got it. I'll see you next week. So, That's you know what I mean? I just, story. but I just, that was just that sense of being, you know, wanted and yeah. not being the, the, the fisher of men, which was so in the time I was young, you know, it was caught, you know, she chased him. He chased her till she caught him and the rules and never yes. do this and yes. always do that. And and it was just like, that's balderdash, you know? Yeah. I mean, but I, it took me a while to untangle all that. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? That, that someone, you know, that these three sisters in this strange parsonage I way know. out in the middle of nowhere with a, with a, I mean, extraordinarily self-taught parson father who, you know, I, I didn't realize this, had been raised as a blacksmith, was yeah. raised by completely illiterate parents yeah. as a blacksmith and gets educated enough to go to Cambridge and then retires to the parsonage. And these these strange children emerge. And the son and their brother, the they, they just, totally. they worshipped. Right. He was not the person that they worshiped and that's what i finally untangled was that the men they were coming up with mm-hmm. were all based around where they were at around their brother mm-hmm. 
Because when you think about it, you go to, oh, what was it? The book Agnes, Agnes Gray, I think. Agnes Gray, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you realize there's an actually really good movie that somebody made about them called To Walk in the Whatever, To Walk in Darkness or something. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's on, um, I think the BBC did it, but it was actually mm-hmm. quite good in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, their fantasy world. Right. You know? Right. I read a description of, again, it was fun, just re- it's always fun revisiting these books when I haven't looked at them for a little bit. And um, I, I loved this. I made a note of it. Uh, Emily Bronte was described as the patron saint of difficult women. Yes. And I I loved, and there was a little short story about her. You know, they all were sent off at various points of the Bronte sisters to be governesses to earn a, earn a living. Right. And at one point, Emily was sent off to be a governess to some children uh, in Brussels. And the children reported when they were fully grown of what, how much they hated her. And they <laughs> hated her because she refused to teach them. I forget she was hired to teach them piano, possibly, I think. Mm-hmm. She refused to teach them during school hours because she needed those hours to study and write herself. Mm-hmm. So they hated her because they did school all day and then they had to go and do their piano lesson with mm-hmm. Emily Bronte, mm-hmm. which cut massively into their playtime. Mm-hmm. So, And she was absolutely, despite being, you know, early 20s, let's say, possibly late teens, utterly uncompromising, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that she's there to teach these children, being paid for this, was unequivocal about what her needs were. If you don't like it, fire me and I'll go home. You know, easy. Delighted, which is what she really was (laughs) angling for in the first place. Right. But I I just love that sort of obstreperousness. And, and, you know, thinking about Wuthering Heights, I I know just what you mean. And, of course, the the dark, brooding appeal of Heathcliff as the romantic ideal is is still at work today. And, uh, you know, I've got girlfriends who are still chasing Heathcliff as we Mm, speak. Sadly. Sadly. (laughs) But I'm, I'm also struck that the women in in Wuthering Heights are active. These are not passive women. I mean, Isabella escapes him and takes the kid with her. Um, You know, Catherine never loses her hardiness, never gives in. Nellie Dunn, who is our narrator, the whole Mm -hmm. one who survives long enough to tell us this story, intervenes, intercedes over and over. I'm not going to pretend that these are, you know, pioneering women who were off no, but trailblazing, but they are, they are not passive. Right. That is not, we are not being shown the passive feminine. No, it's all. not little Dorrit. And that, and that's, I think why it was so compelling to me because it wasn't like, Oh, darling, I want you. I want you. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm pushing you away and you're coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I'm being myself. Mm-hmm. And and you aren't going away in some very in Cahote, not exactly, not exactly right. correct, you, right. you know, reading. But I think, yes, it's because they were active women and because, you know, it, it just was, um, I don't know. It really, it really messed a lot of women up, but I, <laughs> but I, I understand, you know, but I know what you're saying about the active mm. women. It's true. Yeah. I think that's what sold the lie so beautifully. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. It could be that piece. Tell me, because it's interesting talking about active women, let's talk about your next book, which is Middlemarch, yeah. A Study of Provincial Life by George Eliot, yeah. published in 1871. Uh, George Eliot was, of course, the name she wrote under. Her real name was Marianne Evans. 
similarly, it's worth mentioning that um, Emily Bronte wrote under the name Ellis Bell, as they right. all the Bronte sisters did, wrote yeah. under pseudonyms. So that's always, to me, is super interesting, just as a detail, these women mm. that, that couldn't... Um, couldn't be themselves on the page or, or could be themselves on the page but then had to hide their mm-hmm. identity in order to to write that way right uh, tell me when you read Middlemarch and probably again when I was like 13 or 14 mm-hmm. um maybe I definitely was junior high school right um and you know it was one of those books uh where you know, I had the same thing that happened to me with Thomas Hardy and Henry James. It's like, you know, there was stuff I didn't understand and I skipped it. Sure. You know, and then kept going. Uh, and then would go back and read it again and go, oh, wow, yeah, that's the part I skipped. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a very fast reader before I had my cataract surgery because I was basically mm-hmm. reading with one eye and I was incredibly fast. So I was a fast skipper as well. Sure. But I think, um, you know, for me, I was young and that sense of the desire to do something great, you know, that's, that's Dorothea's kind of ruling passion Mm. was something I really understood. And I felt like it was one of the first books of that kind that I read that didn't sort of make fun of it. You know, um, and, but it also didn't, she didn't either fail at that or succeed at that. She Mm. learned about that. She learned how to do it in a way that was right for her, Mm. you know, in, Mm. and right for her family and her society, Mm. you know, she wasn't leaving home and pissing everybody off to go to the city. You know, she was just so many of the stories of women were like their freedom was a great rupture. Yeah. Uh, and we're sort of making the decision between love and, and fulfilling following this desire, or there was a sense of them being ridiculed, you know, Mm. or at very least being, you know, taken in hand by a man who led them to the, you know, it's like, um, you know, even in little women, you know, Joe and, you know, Mr. Bear, the big German guy who gets her all righteous since to stop writing, you know, the sadistic thrillers that made her money, which I loved about Greta Gerwig's movie, how she turned, she just, in, in I haven't little, seen it yet. Oh, you've really got to see it. It's really yeah, great yeah, yeah. because what she does yeah. is she conflates Joe's true story about getting the book published with Joe's story in the book. Uh-huh. And the only major change she makes to the character, and Meg is like the sanest one in the room. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. Right. It is really, right. really good. She just so took good. all that Christian pious shit that Louisa May Alcott had to shove into her books to get them published. She just took it all out. She just took it out. And it's the, I feel like it's the story that Louisa May Alcott wanted to write, frankly. Oh, wonderful. But but couldn't because she had to be a pious girl. But at any rate, um, and, and I loved how, you know, how the ambitious man, the doctor, 
Lydgate, yeah. Lydgate, you know, fell in love with this pretty woman. Rosamund. And how, yeah. yeah, Rosamund, and how his life did not succeed in the way he thought, but he found a balance. Mm. And when he died, mm. she went off and married somebody, the man mm-hmm. that she thought he had been when she was young. But it was like how relationships do change you, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to change men to be great and women to be diminished, you know? Mm. I just think it's I just think it's one of the greatest novels ever written. I really do. I mean, I just think the whole you know, the the passion for money, the the love of work, the the idea, people having ideas of who they should be mm. and and then finding out who they are. Um the idea that this that Rosamond is so should be because she's so pretty and so good at, you know, being the prettiest girl in the room, the assumption that he could then mold her, but of course he could not, mm-hmm. you know, and that the women could not be molded by anybody but themselves. Mm. Even, you know, Mary and the guy who, you know, didn't get the farm and ended up working for a father. I mean, it's just how relationships if anything undid Wuthering Heights, it was Middlemarch. Because it was how relationships, if you love somebody, that you you change, but you don't change for the worse. You don't change to become the hero or the maiden. You change to become, if someone loves you truly, they love you when you're most yourself. And sometimes they know when you're most yourself a little bit before you do. Mm-hmm. Because you're fighting through pride and ambition and fear of failure, mm-hmm. and they're going, yeah. yeah, but you're so much happier when you're teaching. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. When you're writing, you're miserable. And I'm like, yes, right. And so, and I think Middlemarch is. I really do believe it's one of the that line at the end about unmarked gray. I mean, it's just. I have it here. Should please I read, it? read it. Make sure it's there. Yeah. Elliot concludes that the effect of Dorothea's being was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I just thought, I just think that's so true. And it's why you have to strive to be really good at everything you do, even if you're not, you know, doing some great unchanging thing. You know, you have a responsibility to yourself and to the world to do your best without turning into a stump with butts on it, you know, to, to just to do your best yeah, and not, not because so much depends on it, even though the results will never be thing. I feel that very much because teaching, you know, Mm -hmm. I had two of my students were nominated for Academy Awards this year, Chloe Zhao and Shaka King. This is amazing. And, you know, and (laughs) that, when I saw that, I got more pleasure out of that than I got out of winning my own Academy Award, just because I worked so hard. I believe it. I was sick as a dog when I got that thing. So that was part of the problem. But you know, I, I wasn't their only teacher. You know, there were other mm. teachers. They had other influences. But I know I did my part mm. to get them the confidence and the 
the courage and the mm. stick-to-itiveness to get to where they got to, you know, and the praise for what they did well and telling mm. them to not, you know, not be afraid to fail and all that stuff. Mm. You know, I'm like, I'm, I just feel like I did a little bit of change in the world. I helped. Mm. And yeah. whether it, who visits graves anymore? I mean, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I love this. I, I'm I'm struck to you know Virginia Woolf described Middlemarch as uh, the only English novel written for grown-ups. Yeah, that's um, true. And I it is. I, and I, I I really understand it. You know, there's a. I remember at Oxford someone once saying to me that uh, Jane Austen was was um, clever, but Eliot was intelligent. Yeah. And and I think there is. Uh, We've talked. To, uh, I've talked a fair amount about Austen in this season so far. Um, there's a wit and, a, and an acuteness and an a humour to Austen that is that is undeniable, and, and no one no one does it better. Yeah. And with Eliot, there is uh, just as much humour. She can find the wit. Oh my God! The Casabon. Casabon. Uh, this quote, just this one that I found. Literally, I opened it at random and found this and I loved it so much. Uh, Dorothea's love of riding is so great that she felt she enjoyed it in a pagan sensuous way and always looked forward to renouncing it. (laughs) So good. So good. She could have, no, Austin could have written that about Emma. What's amazing is that it's about Dorothea, but then who is also has all these high minded ideals as you were talking about, but is this, um, whole creature i keep thinking of her in terms of isabel archer in uh, portrait of a lady which yeah. is one of my favorite but in yeah, fact, I, I had my i had my producer interview me yeah. in season one so that i could do this and, and right. portrait of a lady is one of my five and and isabel archer and dorothea brooke i think share this these these um intelligent women who long to be bigger than what society will allow for them and have these high-minded ideals of who they must be and both marry because of these ideals completely the wrong men I mean that there is an enormous overlap yeah it's Um, true I I had never thought of that that's I gotta read portrait of a lady again again yeah that's my Um, book that's what that's one of the ones that I read every year because I just (laughs) am passionate about it um anyway it's a it's an interesting thing and and I I love I love, as you say, uh, the humility of George Eliot, and I love the arrival. It's so hard won, that ending. A funny little side note, just for what it's worth, is I did the play of Frost Nixon on Broadway 10 years ago, whatever it is, really? three kids, 12 years ago, something like that, yeah. And I was the only woman in the cast, and I play Frost's girlfriend in the on the play. And she's a real person in life. She's called Caroline Cushing, and she was David Frost's girlfriend at the time that he met Nixon and in this extremely elegant desperately pared down production that we did which was set on an airplane and in interview studios there were literally two armchairs and that was it and so when a prop was named it became weighty and deeply significant and Caroline Cushing is described as sitting on this airplane and she's reading Middlemarch (laughs) so I read Middlemarch on stage I'd read it before but I read it every single night (laughs) for four months straight (laughs) and I would it became a sort of fun game for me where I would just sit and in the darkness waiting for the lights to come up I would just leaf through just literally like thrum it through and wherever the book opened that was where I started every night so I I read 
funny little snippets of it and I would use it in a way like people use the I Ching or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> tell them what the performance was going to be like or the rest of my day. Right, right. How how Frank Langella was going to treat me that evening. Yeah. You know, it was just... <laughs> It was great. So I, I mean, I can't imagine. I wanted to be an actor. I was an actress when I was much younger, and I wanted mm-hmm. to be an actress. Uh, and I think that was one of the things of that urgency of the, you know, there were so many things I wanted to do that I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to study Latin, but they can't, when I got to high school, they canceled Latin and replaced it with Russian. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a, a, I wanted to be, I just thought I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, basically. And, oh, wow. And, but they wouldn't let me... Um, you, you know, they had clerk, you could be an intern at Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Girls were not allowed. You know, there was just all these things. And I think I wanted to be an actress because it seemed like, well, then I could be anything and nobody could tell me not to be, you know, but what I couldn't be was tall and thin, you know, so I was great for a while. But when I got to New York and I went to an audition, I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to be an ingenue. I, no, I'm out. I'm out, you know. Um, I, I feel I've only just started growing into my roles. I've been waiting years to be this age. I really yeah. <laughs> have. I've been waiting to not be cast as the girlfriend. I can't for a very believe it. Yes. Time. What was it? What was her line of like? You're either something, uh, a prosecutor, or driving Miss Daisy. The three. Yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about your last book, which is the Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing. It yeah. was published in 1962. Uh, for people that, like me, to my shame, hadn't read it, but I promise I will, Carol, because I'd like to be your friend, and <laughs> it's clearly a condition. Um, for people that haven't read it, it's the story of Anna Wolf, uh, who keeps four different notebooks in which she tries to compartmentalize her life to some degree. One is for, you'll correct me, but one is for dreams, one is for uh, her communist beliefs. And then the fifth notebook is where she attempts to synthesize all of them. Each notebook has a different color and the fifth notebook is the golden notebook. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was doing my dive into this, I was really interested reading uh, Doris Lessing talking about there was an interesting article in the guardian uh, with her talking about it 50 years later oh i would love and, to re- email that to me oh, I I'll, I'll, I'll send you yeah, it, I would love to read it was really it was really fascinating and um it was interesting because she was very clearly said i did not set out as who does but i did not set out to write a feminist bible i was looking at fragmentation and that was the word that i was so struck by and, yeah. and i thought was really interesting and and postmodern and yeah. relevant. So that was there. That's enough on, on my, <laughs> my introduction to the book. Tell me, tell me where it fits in your life when you read it. Well, I think, you know, again, I did that. I read when it, when did it come out? Six, 1962. 1962. My, my mother had a lot of books and I would always, when I went to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I would always grab one and read. And occasionally I would grab one that was really good. And my mother would find me like five hours later, still sitting on the toilet (laughs) to stay home from school, which is what happened with gone with the wind. It happened with, um, with uh, persuasion. Um, and I think it happened with, uh, one Henry James book, but I can't remember which one. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I grabbed the golden notebook and I think I may have been 13, you know, wow. And I remember starting it and it, you know, and just 
getting into it and, and closing it and saying, I'm not ready for this. I'm not you ready knew. for this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I, but it's, you know, it put a burr in my mind. I started thinking about it and then I picked up the grasses singing, which I read and, mm-hmm. and, and was a little bit readier for, but when I did read it was during the seventies when everybody was fucking everybody else in New York pre, you know, post birth control pre AIDS was my sexual period. And, um, Lucky you. Yeah, really. <laughs> and um, uh, it was, and then I read it, and it was the fragmentation. And what I felt like when I was reading it, it's almost like what I felt like when I was reading um, a book that almost made it to the list, uh, The Things They Carried by, oh, um, yeah. Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien. Yeah. Was that... Um, Was that was that fragmentation that that the idea of discovering who I was as a whole entire person was stupid, that it just didn't exist, and that trying to trying to connect everything tends to kill everything. Now, understand, I was becoming a film editor at the time, so it was an issue, you know. Hmm. trying to make sense out of everything and have everything go A to B to B to C to C to D, you just, you take the life out of everything. Right. And so that the disjunctures were more telling than the transitions. Hmm. And how in this book, there's what happens, and then there's how she rewrites it as a novel, notes Mm -hmm. on her novel. And then you know, it's just this different perspectives. And what I felt like, and this is what I was saying about Tim O'Brien, these, in this book, she, it felt to me like she was going to write true to a female experience, no matter what it did to her prose, her structure, her language, anything. She was never going to lie never going to veer off into the masculine world, which was Mm -hmm. very hard to do back then. People forget, Mm -hmm. you know, Thelma and Louise came out and everybody was like, Oh my God. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of my life. I don't know about you, but but that sense of that little sidestep you would take to read a book that the hero was Harry Potter or, you know, a man, you would take this little shuffle sidestep to be him but your experience mm. wasn't fully represented in there, you know? Mm. So mm. I felt like this one, like she was absolutely not going to write anything about, I mean, the way she talks about the neediness that women have for men, mm. you know, which no woman was allowed to admit given mm-hmm. Cosmo, we were supposed to, you know, again, um, Stand, yeah, yeah sure. he chased her till she caught him. Uh, that that neediness was a sin was you you just never admitted to it acknowledged it, it sure. acknowledged it and she like was exploring it and mm-hmm. and and exploring a person exploring it watching her daughter going through you know it was just this and how alien men can seem sometimes and never like doing that little leap of like oh yeah I understand he's got this it's like nope I am describing him as you know. And it was really pivotal for me because it made me sort of realize how much 
because I was working in a man's business and I was constantly around men, how, how getting to my own perspective was, was, was being dismissed as a screenwriter, Mm -hmm. as an editor, as a creator of things. And that Mm -hmm. this book was sort of my touchstone of like, okay, I better go. I got to go read the gold notebook. I gave it to, I had, I have this friend who, um, he's much younger than me, but we've had this very long conversation. He's now married with a kid and lives in Philadelphia. So now we have an exchange of letters, (laughs) but we would have, I made him read the golden notebook which many men don't read though. Obama had, had it on his list, uh, which oh, good. I, I thought was amazing. Um, yeah. and he said, Carol, I, I, it's just, I felt like I was eavesdropping on a conversation I wasn't supposed to hear. Mm. He said he was really like, he just felt, he felt like he was invading something while he was reading it. I was like, good, we can be friends. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, it's such a complex book and she was working on fragmentation but the reason she was fragmenting like in things they carried was because she was going to be true to the experience no matter what it did to her writing and he Mm -hmm. did the same thing you Mm -hmm. know he was being true to the you could see it in his book how he keeps like winding back and going Mm -hmm. maybe i'm the guy who like got them out maybe i'm the guy who fell in the shit maybe i'm the guy you know he's just like Mm -hmm. He's so, and that's, that's what I mean is this, Mm. you, you, and as an editor, you know, going in sometimes in order to, to stay true to the essence of what's happening, you have to break profoundly with convention because if you try to make it make sense, Mm -hmm. give it context, you know, Mm -hmm. you're just gonna, that which is revelatory about the material is just going to fly out the window. Because hmm. revelation is is made of surprise, hmm. you know. You have to be surprised before you are revelatory yes. or whatever. Yes. You know, yes. you have to be like, "What? No, oh, you know." That's yes. so that that's what I felt. It was a very strong influence on my editing. You know, I tried to write a fragmented screenplay, but that didn't go anywhere in the 80s, as you can imagine. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's just she really I just felt so many parts of me that I kept secret and felt like I Mm -hmm. wasn't allowed to expose were like Mm -hmm. right on the page. And it just Mm -hmm. was like, huh. And I'm really glad I didn't read it when I was 13 because it would have completely freaked me out. But. Beautiful. You've just pushed it right to the top of the list for me, Carol. Uh, You really have. Not just because, you know, uh, it's just so lovely to hear you knit together how the book impacted you uh, personally, as you say, this this experience, as your friend so beautifully puts it, of, of eavesdropping on something you're not meant to hear and hearing someone finally say out loud what you haven't even known yourself that you're experiencing. That, to me, is the essence of reading. That's, yeah. that's the revelation I, I look for. Yeah. But then to hear you expand it and turn how how words on a page then impacted how you then edit the visual medium. Yeah. That's glorious. That's yeah. not a nexus. Well, absolutely. That I no, no. That's, I mean, it's like the odyssey, for Christ's sake. You know, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, I, there are many of my students who are writing screenplays and they're like all very well, I need to set this up and I need to explain why this person does this. <laughs> I'm like, did you read the Odyssey in college? You went, no. I said, read the Odyssey and then we'll talk. <laughs> 
you know, because it's like, it's, it jumps all over the place. It jumps through time. It jumps narrators. It jumps whatever. There's a new translation. The woman did this translation of it. And I listened to it that the translator reads it and she gave herself the limitation of not having any more lines in her translation than were in the original poem. Oh, great. Which means the rigor of the narrative is like right in there. You know, he had to keep a bunch of drunken soldiers entertained and you'd never get that when people do 14 lines to explain the nature of Penelope's hands. But she, and it, and the language, some of the translations she comes up with are fabulous, but to hear a woman's voice read the Odyssey Mm. is you realize how many women speak in it. Right. It's almost like Athena is telling the story in a way. It's fantastic. It was a great listen too. I mean, I'm, I'm oh great. I'll check it out. It's a, I'll, I'll look it up. Or if yeah. you think of it, send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes. That'd be really fun. Okay. Um, I wanted to read for again, just for those of us that haven't read the Golden Notebook. I wanted to. I, I, I found this extract that I loved because I think it mirrors the experience of fragmentation, both uh, in terms of how she's writing and what she's writing. She went to the nearest underground, not thinking, knowing she was in a state of near collapse. The rush hour had begun. She was being jostled in a herd of people. Suddenly she was panicking, so badly that she withdrew from the people pressing towards the ticket booth and stood, her palms and armpits wet, leaning against a wall. Something is happening to me, she thought, struggling for control. She was thinking, if someone cracks up, what does that mean? At what point does a person about to fall to pieces say, I'm cracking up? She shut her eyes, seeing the glare of the light on her lids, feeling the pressure of bodies, smelling sweat and dirt, and was conscious of Anna, reduced to a tight knot of determination somewhere in her stomach. Anna, Anna, I am Anna, she kept repeating. I loved that little extract because I felt like it gave me such a taste of of the, the nature of the narrative. I, I felt like it replicated on the page what the whole ethos it seems to me of the book is about and you know when you read it out loud you're aware of these short tight little sentences and punctuation that's being stretched to its limits it's just like you're saying that no but it's wonderful it's 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 you know it's what Joyce did it's it's can I push language to its extreme in order to get my point across right well you know Juliet Stevenson reads it Oh really? Yeah, oh, fun. and she's I'd like, love to hear that. I know that she she That's does. You fit. could tell she really is like, no, no, no. I'm I'm reading this. You just <laughs> whatever. No, she does a great job. She does a really oh, great, great job. I saw I her know. on stage in the Death and the Maiden at the oh. Crescent like a million years ago. Oh my god! Me too. Really? Me too. I saw the same production in London. Yeah. When she pulled incredible. that gun out, it was like a real gun entered the room. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I had, and being an American, I've been around guns. I had the exact same feeling in my body that I have when some drunken guy pulls a gun out in the bar. It's like, wow. okay, where's the yeah. exit? You know, it's like, wait yeah. a minute, I'm at a play. Okay, yeah. it's, it's okay, <laughs> it's okay. I pe- Unbelievable. I yeah. 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 Um, Carol, this has just been such a pleasure. I, I know, I don't want to stop. Delightful. It's so fun and juicy, and I had many other thoughts and ideas. I was struck reading about Doris Lessing. I kept thinking about um, 
that Swedish writer Carl of Nausgaard mm-hmm. and my struggle and, and thinking about, I, I'd read an interesting article recently about would anyone read my struggle if it had been written by a woman? Would anyone be interested in that sort of tiny detail? <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I literally started my struggle and I was like, I can't, I just can't, I can't, <laughs> you know, and I started Proust late, you know, I read the first one, which is great. But then when it got, and I said, I cannot read seven books of a man who has absolutely no idea what's going on in the heads of all the women around him. I just, I just can't. I'm sorry. I, love it. I can't, no, I can't I, do it. I was and then so they go, Oh, kidding. Elena Ferrante is a man. And I'm like, okay, Banksy's a woman. Fuck you. You know, it's like, I just can't, I can't. Boy, the Elena, have people put the Elena Ferrante books on your list? No, really? not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Haven't had them yet. Those but were, it's crazy. It's wonderful. This, this, podcast of mine it's it, I, five is such a good number because it's there's a constriction to it it was and it's, nuts no, it was, it's a hard number it's, it's nuts i finally I had to it. divide it into my life it was like okay childhood yeah high school you know sexual yeah. awakening marriage you know i just i had to just take one from a decade because you know i mean i my no, I, entire apartment is the war between books and art, and books are winning. <laughs> it's a good war to be waging. It really is. Uh, thank you so, so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and sorry to be such a for, tough fish to find, but... I, you, uh, it was worth every minute of your time, and I'm just deeply, deeply grateful to you. I really am. I loved this, and good. I hope I can come and find you in New York. Oh, please do. Thank you. I would really, really love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I am rereading Portrait of a Lady starting today. Okay, great. I love this conversation so much. It was such a delight to meet Carol and be so surprised by her books and what they meant to her. I loved what she said about Wuthering Heights and how it had ruined her for romantic love for the first half of her life. I think this is the first time a guest has picked a book that steered them wrong. And I just loved how candid and generous she was with herself and her stories. So I want to know from you, what books shaped your ideas about love? What made you change your mind about how intimate relationships work? For me, one of them was Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates. I talk about it again in my episode of Bookish. Um, But in all honesty, I learn something from every book that I read, I think. Anyway, share your insights and your recommendations on our Instagram page, Bookish with Sonia. Huge thanks to Carol for sharing so much of herself with us and to my beloved friend Lou Pepe for introducing us. Thanks as ever to Brie Weiss for producing the episode. Books referenced can be found in the show notes or website. And please subscribe, leave a review, share the episode, tell a friend, maybe buy a book you might not have thought to. Join me next week for my conversation with author and activist Aisha Sussay.